In the world of sports, there is an ongoing debate about what is the proper way to celebrate after you do something. Right? The, uh, that may look like various different things. Uh, every Super Bowl uh, Sunday, it seems like, someone tags this on my Facebook page. There's someone who uh, came across a, a church or did a skit that uh, said, what if we did church as if it was a football game, right? And so when the preacher preaches a good sermon, people come out with a big Gatorade bucket and just douse him and, the, and pour Gatorade on his head or, or, or the worship band is doing cheers in between things. It, it's, a, it's a funny thing. And, and you watch that and you think, well, that would be, uh, that would be funny, but that probably isn't appropriate for the setting, although it'd be memorable for sure. Um, and so there's that debate about what is the proper level of celebration and what's excessive. Well, the NFL back in 2006 decided that they were going to crack down on excessive uh, celebrations after touchdowns. And so they put in place a rule called excessive celebration penalties, and they could throw a flag if you busted out something or used props or did something that they deemed inappropriate or excessive, and they would throw a flag and they would penalize you 15 yards for an unsportsmanlike uh, action on a football field. And that continued until 2017 and when they released uh, the, the guys to be a little more creative creative in their celebrations after they scored. Um, and so what's the appropriate level of celebration after a, a win or after a, an achievement of some kind? One of my favorite baseball pictures of this season is this one, if you go to that next one. That is Yasuel Puig. I practice his name all week long to say that right. Yasuel Puig, and I'm still not going to say it right. And so anyway, Puig plays for the, the Reds. And you'll notice in this picture that he is attempting to fight the entire Pittsburgh Pirates baseball team by himself, right? He's not going to be stopped. He just wants anybody who's in front of him. And you think, how in the world does a baseball game get to that level? Well, it's about a debate about what's the proper amount of celebration after someone hits a home run. You see a, a, earlier in that game, a Reds player hits a home run, and, and it went a long ways. It actually left the stadium, went into the river outside the stadium, and he stood and he watched it, which if you read, read the unwritten rules of baseball, that's a no-no, right? You're supposed to just get on, get on your way. Well, the pitcher didn't appreciate that. Later on in a different game, that guy came up to bat, and they threw behind him. I think they were trying to hit him in the tush, but they missed it, went behind him. He got upset. It started, people started chirping and all of a sudden you've got uh, one man trying to take on an entire baseball team. All because we're trying to decide what's the appropriate level of celebration and where do we cross the line of it being excessive. And so that's true in the world of sports. Um, you may not be a sports person and you think that's the dumbest thing in the world, grown men fighting over who watches a baseball. And those are silly things and I get it. But when you put yourself in it, change the, change the context then. Let's say as a country, we have watched over the years when we have been attacked at different levels by terrorist folks um, who have done terrible things to us. And it's something that produces a level, of, a level of anger in you when you see someone gloating or celebrating over pain that's inflicted on our country from, from some attack or something. And so and regardless of the context, whether it's sports, whether it's uh, just the world, our country, or our those struggles or whatever it may be, even siblings living in the same home relate to that or husbands and wives or people working in a workplace together. We all know that there's times when you do something really good and you want to celebrate it or there's something really good happening in your life and you want to celebrate it. And so what's the level of excess? And so that Theme, that theme is what I want us to introduce today because we've been looking this summer at the stories that Jesus told in Luke as a storyteller. And we have watched him tell stories at different contexts and different themes. And for the next couple of weeks here, we're going to 
dive into probably the most famous chapter of Jesus as a storyteller, which is Luke chapter 15. Um, it ends, the last story in the chapter is the prodigal son story, and we'll talk a little bit about that today. But in order to appreciate that story, you need to appreciate all of the stories and the context of that chapter, because really when you read Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, it, it sets the stage. It tells you, well, why did Jesus tell stories about a lost sheep? Why did he tell a story about a lady losing a coin? Why did he tell a story about a dad who's lost a son? Well, why, why does he tell those stories? Well, the Bible's, they're not random. It is very intentional. I think it has everything to do with this whole excessive celebration issue that uh, isn't a new issue at all. It's been around for a long time. And so let's read Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. The context of those beautiful stories begins this way. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. And I just pause there a second, okay? The tax collectors... Um, you know, if you know your Bible much at all, you know that tax collectors tend to be not, not people that were well thought of. In fact, someone has defined them as a person who bought the right to tax his own people to support the Roman army that was oppressing your people. All right? So not only were you collecting taxes, but you paid for the right to tax your own people so that, that money could be sent to a Roman government and that government is then turning around and oppressing your own people. So that you can imagine that person is not real popular um, in the community. All right? And so at many levels. And so the tax collectors and the sinners, put that in quotation marks, the people that were undesirable, the people that the religious folks didn't really have much time for, uh, people that just weren't really trying to live up to maybe biblical morality. They were just people that was kind of on the outside of things. But for some reason, they loved to gather around and listen to Jesus. And so they were. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around, and that word is not just a one-time thing. That word implies this is a regular happening, right? This keeps happening. They kept gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, muttered to themselves and out loud, this man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. What's going on there? If you go back to that, uh, that picture of the referee throwing the flag, the Pharisees want to throw a flag here because there's some excessive celebration. There's some ex excessive uh, interaction going on here that in their eyes is completely excessive and ought not to be happening. That someone of Jesus' stature who claims to be a rabbi, a man who claims to speak for God, ought not to be having these kinds of gatherings and meetings and celebrations and even parties that they would gather at and they would visit together at. And so they wanted to throw a flag on Jesus and penalize him for his behavior. And in fact, as you read that story in, in, in Luke's gospel, we've already seen another example. Earlier, we saw in Luke chapter 7 that, that Simon, one of the Pharisees, one of the right people, invited Jesus to this very fancy dinner. And yet in the course of that dinner, one of these undesirables showed up and began to anoint his feet. And, and she began to weep and her tears fell on his feet. And, and she anoints his, his, his feet with, with perfume and with her tears. And, and it's just a scene. And, and Simon completely discredits Jesus because he allows this to go on. In Luke chapter 5, you see a situation where Jesus converts and wins over a man by the name of Matthew, uh, who was a tax collector, but now he wins him over to be a disciple, and he's going to leave his tax collecting business and go be a disciple of Jesus. And, and before they leave, 
Matthew invites all of his tax collector friends to come to his house for a party, for a celebration where they're going to be able to meet Jesus. And so he invites all of his friends that the Pharisees were just disgusted by, and yet Jesus was quite comfortable being there, going there, interacting with them, um, and befriending them, most importantly. And so the Pharisees, as they looked for reasons to discredit Jesus, and they were always looking for reasons to discredit Jesus, uh, and most of them were made up, most of them didn't really stick, but this stuck. Jesus did have a habit of hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. That's just what he did. And so the question then leads us then to say, well, why did he do that? The Pharisees were just constantly annoyed and angered by his willingness to do this, his habit of doing this. And so we have to ask the questions, why were they so quick to throw flags at his inactions? Why were they so quick to, to throw a flag and, and, to, and to just call out what he's doing? And so I just want us to ask this question today. Uh, why did, why, what led Jesus to being flagged for excessive celebration? All right? What led Jesus uh, to be flagged. Why did the Pharisees do this? Why was there this tension between the religious establishment and what Jesus came to do and be and his habits? Uh, there's this tension between them. And so why is that going on? I think the answer to that question is key to understanding everything that happens in Luke chapter 15. These beautiful stories that you read there, they are speaking directly into this tension of why this is going on, why this happens and, and this tension. So I want us to look at three things today that I think are an answer to that question. Why was Jesus constantly flagged by the Pharisees for, for excessive celebration, for celebrating these people, these people, and I put that in quote, I don't mean that derogatory at all, but in their eyes, in the Pharisees' eyes, he kept hanging out with those people. And so why did he do it? Well, the first answer is simply this. It was his view of God. It was his view of God that began this whole thing. Why did Jesus hang out with people that the Pharisees would not even give the time of day to? It was because of his view of God. And why did the Pharisees not hang out with those people? It was because of their view of God. It was the way that they viewed God, thought about God, thought of what God was. You see, the Pharisees, by calling Jesus out for hanging out with them, by befriending them, by reaching into that community, the Pharisees were simply being consistent with their portrait of God. To them, there was a very short invitation list for people that if God was going to have a party, the people that he would invite would not be those people. It would be the moral people, the religious, passionate people, the people who kept the laws and the people that were busy about the business of God. There's a short list of people that would be invited to a party where God is. And so their view of well, who, invite, who gets invited to have a celebration with God would be a very short list of very moral, good, upright people that are better than everybody else. But that view of God influenced everything they said and did and the way they thought about the world around them. And so why did Jesus interact with those people? Because he had a different view of God. And so he tells these three stories to illustrate and to show this is the God that he knows. This is the God that he is, but this is the God he knows. This is the God he serves. And so listen to these stories beginning in Luke chapter 15, verse 3. He tells a story that more of the guys would relate to, more of the farmers in the, in the, in the group would have related to. He says this, Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and he loses one of them. 
Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. And I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Note that word rejoice and rejoicing, right? There's a celebration. There is a level of joy. There's a level of happiness, of of, of partying, if you could use that word in a a godly way. There's a level, (coughs) something up here on the stage. I'm allergic to lions is what it is. Um, And so, there is, um, there's a level of joy and rejoicing. Twice, at least in that passage, Jesus says there is rejoicing. Uh, the, 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 the shepherd rejoices. So note that emotion that he feels over finding something lost and finding it and having it back in his care and his possession again. So he tells this story, and, and as Jesus told this story, every, uh, these, these shepherds in these communities, many of them would have been very small communities, that... Um, they wouldn't have had individual herds. They would have been very they much would have had community herds, and so they would have been divided out at the end of the day. But they would have gone and fed together. They would have wandered the neighborhoods and the, and the hillsides together. And so, when one goes missing, that was an important part of the community. And so, that was an important part of the story. But there's rejoicing when one that is lost is found. Number two, he tells a story that more of the ladies would have related to. He goes to their world when he says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one of them. Now, this would be the equivalent, ladies, if you have a, a wedding ring and you have a, one of those fancy diamonds, maybe it's expensive, and if you were to lose that diamond out of your ring and that feeling of anxiety or panic to say, hey, this is very valuable, this is special, uh, that's what these 10 coins would have been. It would have been part of a dowry. It would have been a very important part of their life and of their world and of their future. And so he says, doesn't she light a lamp then and sweep the house and search carefully, turning it upside down until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me for I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so you read the story, you're thinking, some of you are thinking, one sheep leaving 99, that seems extreme. In fact, if we were just to do the math on that as, a, as an accountant, you think, well, that's a crazy thing to leave 99 to go find one. Because if we just wait a little while, we're going to have more baby sheeps and we're gonna have, we'll have plenty. That one sheep, it's not a big deal. It's just one sheep. And so even the, the lady said, oh, you lost a coin, not a big deal. We can invest that money, earn that money back, replace the coin, it'll be okay. Not worth getting all upset about. And so if you read these stories with the mind of an accountant, you're missing the point of what Jesus is saying. Jesus wants you to read this story, not with the, the head of an accountant, but he wants you to read it with the heart of someone who has lost something. He wants you to feel this. And he wants you to think about, think about something in your life that, that maybe the value of it is more than the worth of it. You understand what I'm saying by that? Maybe it's an heirloom. Maybe it's been passed down a few generations. And maybe by, by an um, economic value of it, it's not that valuable. But there is great value to that because there is sentiment to it. It's been passed down by generations or it came from someone special. Maybe it's uh, your, a kid's craft when your kids were little. When we moved here, we had a bucket of, of kids' 
Christmas ornaments that were worthless. No one would have bought them from us, all right? But they, they fell in a move, and, and many of them were broken. And when we opened that and realized that, there was sadness, right? Not because we lost millions of dollars, but because something that had sentimental value, our heart was connected to it, went back to a special place in our life, and, and that was lost, Maybe it's wedding pictures. Maybe you've gone somewhere and, and your luggage didn't arrive with you and you realize the value of, of simple things like undergarments. You think, how oh, those are not expensive, but those are very, very valuable to me right now because I don't have them. Right? And so there are things like that that when you lose them, there's a heart connection. That's what Jesus is getting to. And to illustrate that one last way, he tells this third story that we're just going to summarize today and come back and, and dive into in deeper ways next week. But but says this in verse 11, to, com- to even drive it further, this, who is Jesus? Why is Jesus doing this? It's because he has this heart and, he, and God is, that he serves is, is different than the Pharisees think he is. Jesus continued in verse 11, there is a man who had two sons and the younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Now just pause there and let's just understand a few things about what you're reading there. For a Jewish family, there was nothing more valuable than land. That goes way back to Israel's initial inheritance of the promised land. What was the thing that God was going to give them that they had not had for centuries? Going back to even Abraham was a nomad. God's promise was, I'm going to give you a land. And so the most valuable thing that for a Jewish family to have was a piece of the promised land. Not only was it Um, financially helpful to be able to grow and feed your family, but it also connected you to God's promises that God has been faithful and this is part of everything that God is doing in our life. And so normally when a dad would die, his boys would divide up the land and they would uh, continue on the family's care of it. But the younger brother does something that is stunning here. He comes to his dad and says, Dad, you aren't dead quick enough. I want you to give me my inheritance now. Again, that sounds rude to us, but in a culture that values honor and shame a lot more than Western culture does, this was a huge insult. To say, Dad, I I just want your land. I don't care if you live or die. I just want what's mine, okay? There's a rudeness. There's an arrogance to that. But even more stunning, if you were originally hearing this, that the dad agrees to give him his part of the land. And even more stunning yet, the son just completely disregards that by, by going and selling the property, the stuff that the family valued so much. He sold it because of why? Because you can't buy beer, can't buy the ladies, can't enjoy uh, the border town he's going to with land. And so he sells it and he gets all this money together and he takes off for a faraway, t- a faraway land And the people listening are thinking, this is the most worthless son I've ever heard of. This this son doesn't deserve anything, right? He's making a mockery of his father. He's insulted him. He's wasted what the family had. He is just a worthless son. But the father that could not make the son stay on the property also had a heart that would not let him go. And so every night, the story implies that he would get a chair and he would look down the road in the direction that his son had left, And he watched and he hoped that someday he would see that son come back again. And one night he does. And the son is walking down the road and he's dirty. He smells. He's broke. His head is drooped. If he had a tail, it would be between his legs. He's just defeated and broken, but he's coming home. And the people listening to that story for the first time would have been thinking, okay, what happens now? This shameful son is finally going to be shamed properly by his father. 
But that's not what happens. In verse 20, it says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. That's not what they expected. That's not what they thought he deserved. But yet that's what he got. He got a father that embraced him and loved him and kissed his lost son who'd come home. And the son begins this guilty speech saying, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father wasn't listening because it goes on to say this, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. So let's go back to our initial question. Why did Jesus eat in fellowship with people that the Pharisees didn't believe to be worthy of their time? It's because Jesus saw God differently than they did. Jesus saw God like this. Jesus saw God as a, as a shepherd who loses a sheep and he values the one and he goes looking for him. Jesus said God was like the, the lady who loses her coin and, and values it enough to tear her house upside down, turn it upside down to find it. And, and he's like the father whose heart is broken because his son is gone. And all three of them rejoices when that which was lost comes home and is found again. That's a different view of God than the Pharisees had. The Pharisees looked at them and said, you know what, they're all just like that, that prodigal son who just wandered away and he's not worth our time anymore. Whatever happens to him, happens to him. But Jesus said, that is not the heart of the God I know. And so no one had ever painted a portrait of God like that. And a lot of us still have trouble thinking of God in those terms because we can picture God in a courtroom. I can picture God sitting behind uh, the bench with his robes on, making judgments about guilt and innocence, mostly guilt. And I can picture God in a boardroom running the universe. And I can picture God sitting in a chair in front of a church service and, and us singing songs to him about how worthy he is and how great he is. We can picture that. But Jesus saw God in a different way. He saw God as a God who searches, whose heart aches for his lost children. And that changed, moving to the second thing I want you to see, that changed the way not only that Jesus saw God, but because he saw God that way, it changed the way he saw the people that he interacted with. Number two, that, that they got on to Jesus. They thought Jesus was excessive because he valued each person in a way that they did not. He had a value for each person that was unique that the Pharisees would never think of because those people don't deserve. They don't keep the rules. They don't follow the law. They don't do what, what we do. And so their worth was, was little. Jesus is saying, if you can't see God right, you will never see people right. And the idea of this is important for us to get. Uh, in 2009, there was a, a lady that lived in Tel Aviv, Israel, and she had an old mattress, and she also had a daughter. And so her daughter came home one day, and she noticed that her mom's mattress was old, it was lumpy, it was just not very comfortable. And so she thought, I will surprise my mom, and I will get her a new mattress. 
And so while her mom was gone one day, she, she got rid of the old mattress and put it on the curb for the trash people to take. And, and she put a new mattress on it and put new uh, blank covers, made, made the bed, whatever you do with that. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, I have this person who magically shows up and does that at my house. I don't know how it happens. But um, they, uh, they made the bed. I'm kidding. I help every once in a while. Okay. And so she made the bed and, and, uh, and mom went to sleep and in her sleep realized this feels different. So she pulled back the covers and realized that the mattress was changed. And she wasn't happy. She was panicked. And she began to holler and say, what happened? What happened? And it seems as this lady had a distrust for banks. And so she had been stuffing thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in her mattress over time. And so what do you think the next day was consumed by? It was searching one landfill after another, trying to find their mattress. And that's the illustration that Jesus says, that's what God is like. There's a, there's a, there's a sadness, there's a desire for that which was lost to come back. And so Jesus is telling the Pharisees through these stories that you look at these people and they look dirty to you and they are worthless to you. And to you, they just need to be thrown out because they're not worth your time. But the God that Jesus knows and serves says they have incredible value to their father and that someone needs to be about the business of finding them. And that's exactly what Jesus does. That's exactly what Jesus' life was all about. Someone has described, if you were to go back and align these stories together, that there's three common themes in each story. And it looks like this, that each story begins with a separation. And in that separation, it's this idea that Jesus wants us to feel the weight of lostness. That being removed from the Father, being separated from your heavenly Father is a sense of lostness. And, and, and that when, I, when I'm guilty, when I am disobedient, there's a separation that, that comes and that, that's real. And that we should feel that, the weight of that. So it begins with separation. It builds towards reconciliation. Each story's got a little scene where someone's looking, someone's looking, someone's waiting and looking on the horizon, waiting for the sun to come back. And finally, each story ends in celebration. And again, to the Pharisees, it seemed like excessive celebration. That should not be done. But Jesus is trying to get them to see that the heart of God, the heart of Jesus, was for those who have been separated from the one that loves them most, their heavenly Father, he desires reconciliation. And when that reconciliation takes place, there is incredible joy that fills his heart's. And so each story ends in a celebration and they all end on a very happy note except for two people that are not happy at the end of this story. One, at the end of the prodigal son story, there's an older brother. And we're going to have a whole sermon about him in a few weeks. There's an older brother who doesn't want to join in the celebration. And the other one who wasn't happy was the fattened calf. But we're not going to talk about him. And so, uh, but that's a joke. Anyway, sorry, we'll move on. Uh, but the, the older brother, right? The older brother gets this into the story. And when he comes home from working in the fields and dad, he hears the music. He hears the celebration. He hears the feasting going on. And he calls the servant over and says, what's going on? And he tells him the story that your brother has come home and your dad has killed the fattened calf for him. He is throwing a party for him and we're just rejoicing because your brother has come home. But the older brother, and guess who he represents in the story? It's the Pharisees. He says, I won't go into that party. I will not go in there and celebrate him. He won't even call him by name as you read the story and we'll see that in a few weeks. He won't go in. 
And so the father, just like the father ran to the younger son, the father ran to the older son as well. In verse 32, he says, but to the older son, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That little statement that we had to celebrate. It's just the heart of God that when, that, that when one is lost and is now found, that God just, his heart it finds joy in that. It celebrates. And it may, to those who look through moral and judgmental eyes, it looks excessive, it looks foolish. But the heart of God, the heart of Jesus, was a heart that rejoiced. And really, I loved what someone said when they described that the prodigal son story isn't really about the prodigal son. It's much more about the prodigal father. And look at the definition of prodigal. Um, it means spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. And so probably the prodigal son fits that category. He wasted everything he had. But the father did the unspeakable in, in many of his actions. You see, to live in that day, to be an old man, you, you, you had to be respectful and respectable. And so they wore long robes, um, and they would never show their legs. That was just culturally a no-no, all right? And some of you guys who haven't seen the sun in a while, you probably should just maintain that principle. And that's okay thing, too. Um, I'm looking at you, Tim Humphrey. So, okay. So, okay. <laughs> anyway, um, where were we? Okay, respectable legs, all right? So, but to cover them, right? And so think about what the father does in this moment, right? He sees his son who has shamed the family. For the father to run to him and show him dignity was the first um, prodigal thing he did because everybody's thinking that shameful son, we know what he deserves, right? And the Pharisees are thinking, we know what he deserves, but he runs to him. He doesn't just run to him. He embraces him. He touches that which is dirty and smelly. He kisses him. He shows him dignity. He, he covers his dirtiness with a robe and puts a ring on his finger that shows that this is a son. This is not someone coming home uh, begging and groveling. This is my son. I show him dignity and, and forgiveness. And, and by run, lift, in order to run in robes, you have to lift those things up, right? And so he's showing his leg. He's doing these things that culturally would have just been a no-no. But I think in doing that, he takes the shame of the son and he brings it on himself. Look, if you want to be disgusted at someone, be disgusted at me because I'm going to love my son. And so there's this, this gospel part of this that, that the father takes on the shame that would have been the son's and should have been the son's, but it kind of falls in the father and he takes that away in this prodigal act as a father. And so that just leads us to the last thing here. Why did people think Jesus was so excessive in his celebration of these lost people? Number three, it's because his definition of victory was different. For the Pharisees, victory meant I am better than people. I keep the rules better than most. And so God throws me a party and God's pleased with me. And that's victory in my life that I separate myself from all these sinful people. But yet Jesus didn't define victory that way. Jesus defines victory, spiritually speaking, that those that are lost are found. And as we're going to see in a couple weeks, both of these sons are lost both of these sons are disconnected from the heart of their father. What, they do it differently, but they're both, both very lost, and they both need to be found. And one's lost in religion, the other in, in, in hard work. The other one's lost in, in, in waywardness and, and sinfulness and all kinds of, uh, of other things. But Luke 15 shows that real victory is finding the joy of God. And that Luke 15 shows the joy of God. Over and over and over, you get a God who celebrates 
the, the lost being found. God needs to save us, and it filled him with joy to save us. And I love that because I, I've been guilty of it as a church person all my life to think, well, we'll just check the boxes, follow the rules, and we kind of leave the, this rejoicing thing out of it. But don't miss the heart of this, that Jesus tells these legalistic Pharisees, you know what, you think these people are worthless, but when we find one of these and they come home, they reconnect with their heavenly father, there is a level of joy you, will, you don't know because the heart of God is full of joy to find that which is lost to come home because he loves them and he, he aches for them to come back and he longs for them to be with him. And so, so oftentimes I, I think we'll, the temptation for us, if you've been a Christian for a while, the temptation is for that newfound joy that Jesus loves me and Jesus forgives me and Jesus saves me. Um, that joy can be replaced with duty and, and religious activity. And pretty soon we lose that joy and we get, become the older brother way too quickly. And so we present a very dreary, joyless gospel, a joyless Christianity to the world around us. And so my hope and my prayer today is that we would read these stories and that we would see Jesus' view of God, a different view of God that says that even the most lost is still valuable and beautiful and loving, loved by God and the value of each person and his definition of victory and that God is a seeking God and God is on the pursuits of those who maybe we would check off and say, you know what, that's, that's not a very lovable person. But God's heart hungers for people like that, just like he hungers for me, just like he hungers for you. So every one of us are called today to find the joy of God, the joy that, that he had when he found me, when I came home. And the joy, if you have come home to God, have come home to Christ, that the joy he felt when he found you and the joy he still has, even though your path may be wandering, even though your path may not always be perfect, but the joy he has in making you his own. And so you and I, may we discover that joy. May we rediscover that joy if we've lost it. And may we present that joy to the people around us who are looking to see if God still loves them and cares for them.